Love that song. Love singing it with you. Those words lifted right out of Revelation chapter 5, which we just read, and which we'll be referring to again in a little bit. Well, this past week I sent out an all-church email sharing with you all the recommendation of the elders for a new church name, Cross and Crown Church. With the uh, inevitable move uh, to Arrows West, we need a new name. And so my purpose this morning is to share a little bit of the history and the background of our current church name, Austin Bluffs Evangelical Free Church, a little bit about why we chose this new name, and then look to the scriptures and trace some of the richness of these two biblical images, the cross and the crown. First, a little bit of our history. As I shared in the email this week, our church got its name, Austin Bluffs Evangelical Free Church, because of its location. Our church was planted in the early 1970s by the first evangelical free church to be an outreach to the extreme northeast side of Colorado Springs. Well, the the city's grown a little bit since then, and we are more central now than uh, on some extreme northeast side, but that's the way it was back in the 70s. And our property here was nestled, and still is, nestled at the foot of these beautiful bluffs here on your right. If you, you folks can look out and you can see those bluffs right there. You folks, well, you'll just have to take my word for it. And hence our name, Austin Bluffs Evangelical Free Church. Now, that was all great and well and good to be named after these bluffs. That is until the city put a new road in connecting Garden of the Gods with Academy Boulevard And they decided to name that road Austin Bluffs Parkway. And so ever since, we've had to answer the very reasonable question, so where on Austin Bluffs are you? And then we get a blank stare when we say, oh, we're not on Austin Bluffs, we're on Maysland. That doesn't seem to make sense to most people. And it's kind of a long story to share with them the history of that and why that's the case. So the first potentially confusing thing about our name is Austin Bluffs. The second potentially confusing thing about our name is the evangelical free part. Now, from the very beginning of our church, we've been part of the evangelical free church of America. And I can tell you that we have No intention of leaving this association of churches, even though it's not in our proposed new name. Our decision to not include evangelical free in our name in no way indicates any intention to distance ourselves from the denomination. Far from it. We continue to be an active part in the denomination, supporting financially both the district and the the, 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 the national uh, parts of the Evangelical Free Church, participating in district and national fellowship and events, and even bringing our statement of faith very recently into full alignment with the most recent statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church. And many of you were part of that uh, process and decision of uh, about a year ago when we did that. So don't interpret our decision as some kind of a departure or a stepping back from the Evangelical Free Church. That is not our intention. That is not what we are seeking to do. But in considering a new name, we did decide 
that including evangelical free in our name is not very helpful to most people. The evangelical free denomination is a relatively small denomination of churches, about 1,500 churches or so. Compare that to, I don't know, Southern Baptist Convention, which has like, I don't know, 30,000 churches or something like some crazy number like that. We're relatively small. And so therefore, our church, the Evangelical Free Church of America, is not exactly a household name to most people. Now, those who've grown up in and around the Evangelical Free Church or Free Churches are quite comfortable with the name Evangelical Free and sometimes have difficulty understanding why the name isn't that helpful. Well, let me try to explain that a bit. To those in the know, we understand what evangelical free means. And maybe you're like, oh good, he's going to explain it to me because I don't know what it means. Well, evangelical means we believe the Bible is the word of God. Amen? Oh boy, it's early. And that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Thank you. Yeah. The Bible's the word of God, and Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Thank you. But what does the word free mean? Well, it's part of our denomination's history. Our denomination was founded by first-generation Norwegians, Danes, and Swedes. Yeah, sir, you betcha. <laughs> Who were part of free church movements in their home countries. Now, free church movements are distinct and separate from a state church. State churches in those countries were, by definition, intertwined with the national government and that resulted in all kinds of difficulties and complications and sometimes even persecution for those who disagreed with the state church, as we can imagine how that could go. Free churches declared themselves free and independent from state control and oversight and recognized only local church autonomy. That is, they recognized the right of each local church to decide and govern its own affairs under Christ's authority alone. So it is this Local church autonomy, this self-rule that is at the heart of the word free in evangelical free. Now that may seem foreign to us because in America we do not have a state church, thank the Lord, and all churches are in a sense free churches, free from state control. But that is the history behind the term free. So they called themselves evangelical free churches. Now that significant historical context is lost on most people. Understandably so. When they hear evangelical free, they probably aren't thinking, oh yeah, I got it, local autonomy. I got it, free from the authority imposed by a state church system or any other outside authority. No, instead, it often just sounds a bit confusing. And they are left to their own devices to come up with what the word free means or is supposed to mean. A handful of times I've been asked this, evangelical free? Does that mean you don't have any evangelicals? <laughs> They're thinking it's like fat free, 
or sugar-free or stress-free. And I've had to say, no, 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 no. There's no hyphen between evangelical and free. Our church is chock full of evangelicals. Any evangelicals here this morning? I hear you. So that's not exactly something you want to communicate or miscommunicate. I remember telling my Baptist father that I was going to pastor at an evangelical free church in Colorado. And not familiar at all with this denomination, as there weren't many of them in Indiana, he jokingly asked, what does free mean? Does it mean you don't take an offering? If so, that's my kind of church. (laughs) Well, free can mean all kinds of things to different people. And so it takes some significant explaining to those who aren't familiar On the whole, we don't think evangelical free is a very helpful designation, except for those who are already familiar with it as a denomination, in which case they'll still be able to find us easily without it being expressly in our name. Most new evangelical free church plants are choosing not to include evangelical free in their name for just this reason. And many existing churches like our own have already gone through the process of changing their name and dropping the term evangelical free from their name. So we're moving to a new location and with that move, we need a new name. It wouldn't make much sense for us to continue to be known as Austin Bluffs Evangelical Free Church on the west side of town. The elders have considered many names over the last couple of years that we've been discussing this, and I'm intentionally not sharing that list of names with you because inevitably some of you would much prefer some of those other names that we didn't end up putting forward. Choosing a name for a church is very difficult. Inevitably, someone isn't going to like it. And I know that's already happened. Whether because they associate it with another church or ministry with which they had a bad experience, or because they just don't like the sound of it, or whatever. And the elders wrestled through all these things themselves, together. Picking a name is difficult, but it's not a moral issue. It's certainly a wisdom issue, but it's not an inherently moral issue. It's also a style issue in addition to a wisdom issue. We won't always agree with each other on wisdom issues, and we certainly won't always agree with one another on style issues. It's like naming your child. It's hard enough to get a mom and a dad to both agree on the name of a child. But what if each child's name had to be agreed upon by everyone in the church? No child would ever get named. I remember uh, Leanne and I, in in choosing the name for one of our kids, I'm not going to say which one. Uh, We, you know, the child was born, but had no name yet. And 12 hours went by, and 18 hours went by, and 24 hours went by. The child is still unnamed. We finally did settle on one. I won't tell you who. (laughs) But choosing a name, 
can be difficult. So we had to choose a name, and we tried to choose one that would be somewhat unique without being too trendy. A name that would reflect clearly our mission and focus as a church, and a name that could be easily remembered. And we love classic names like Grace and Trinity. And I know many of you like those too. But there are 15 churches in town that use the word grace in their name. And eight churches in town that use the word trinity. So the field is kind of crowded in that regard. So in the end, we landed on Cross and Crown Church. It's obviously a name with rich biblical significance. But it's also, in one sense, a very traditional name, having been used by churches for a long time. But here's the real reason we liked it so much and chose it. Cross and crown sums up the entire gospel message, and it does so in a highly symbolic and illustrative way. The words cross and crown sound good in the ear as they both start with the same three letters. And yet, despite how good they sound together, they are also paradoxical in their meaning. They, they almost fight against each other in, in one way of thinking. They're two words and images that seem to be at odds with one another. Cross and crown. The cross is a symbol of defeat and weakness and suffering. A crown, on the other hand, is highly symbolic of victory and strength and glory. We love cross and crown because it's a beautiful summary of the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love cross and crown because it's a beautiful summary of the good news of the substitutionary death, the victorious resurrection, and the glorious ascension and rule of Jesus Christ. And we love cross and crown because it's a beautiful summary of the Christian life with our life of suffering eventually giving way to glory. So what I want to do in the time that's left this morning is walk us through some scriptures, surveying some scriptures for a few moments, and trace these two seemingly paradoxical themes, cross and crown, and show the scriptures consistently place them side by side. Again and again, the cross and the crown are inseparable parts of the story of our redemption. And so before we do that, let me just go to the Lord and ask him to lead us and guide us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his cross, and we thank you for the crown that he now wears. We thank you for his suffering, suffering on our behalf that we might taste of the glory that is now his. Lord, show us in your word these two themes. Yes, so that we may understand something of our new name, but so much more important than that, that we might understand you and your saving purposes for humanity. Thank you for the story of redemption, a story of a cross and a crown. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, first place I want to take you is John, John's gospel, okay? So turn in your Bibles. 
going to make you turn to a lot of scriptures this morning. Not apologizing for that. John 19. All right, so here we have Jesus. He's on trial before Pilate. This is at the end of his life. And we're going to see a cross and a crown side by side here. John 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put a purple robe on him and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. Just before Jesus is led off to die here in John 19, on the cross of crucifixion, A crown of thorns is placed mockingly upon his head by these Roman soldiers. A royal colored purple robe is placed around him. And so they're setting this up, right? As this man claims to be the king of the Jews. Let's let's dress him up like a king. Crowns are normally symbols of power and glory, but here a crown of Shame and humility has been twisted together and painfully placed atop Jesus' head. In this case, the crown has the same meaning as the cross, doesn't it? A symbol of humiliation, a symbol of suffering, a symbol of death. Jesus went to that cross and he died Three days later, on Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the grave victorious over death. He appeared to the women at the tomb, and then later he appeared to travelers, two travelers on the road to Emmaus. And that's the next place I want us to see together the cross and the crown placed side by side. Look with me at Luke chapter 24. Luke's gospel, chapter 24, and verse 25. So this is the resurrected Christ. He appears to these two men who are traveling the road to Emmaus. They're discouraged because the Messiah has been crucified and is buried, at least in their minds. He's still in the grave, but Jesus has been resurrected. And so Jesus speaks to these men, these two travelers on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 and verse 25. And Jesus, the resurrected Christ, said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? Now, suffer these things. That's the cross, right? That's the cross. And, Jesus continues, to enter into his glory. Yes, that's the crown. The cross and the crown placed side by side. The sufferings and the glories of Jesus Christ placed side by side. 
Jesus here, the resurrected Christ, refers both to his earthly sufferings and his resurrected glory. A glory that would ultimately lead to his ascension where he is even now seated at the right hand of God the Father. So here we see in the words of Jesus, the cross and the crown, again, side by side. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, 9. The author of Hebrews here draws our attention to Jesus and his identity, his accomplishments, his life and ministry, his cross and his crown. Two powerful images. Hebrews 2, 9. But we do see him, that is Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. And what's that? The cross. Crowned with glory and honor. The crown. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, because of suffering and death, crowned with glory and honor. And of course, the cross and the crown are side by side in Philippians chapter 2. Turn there with me if you would. Philippians chapter 2. Keep turning, don't get tired. Don't let your fingers wear out. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So be like Jesus, right? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. That's the crown. That's the glory. That's the honor. That's the power. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus' cross and crown were central to his earthly ministry and central to his heavenly ministry. Jesus' cross and crown not only showed us the way of salvation, himself, Jesus, being the propitiation for our sins, Through his suffering and death on the cross, as he who knew no sin became sin for us, as he took our place as our substitute, as he died and was buried and rose again and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, showing that the Father was pleased with the sacrifice of his Son. Jesus' cross and his crown are central to our salvation. But not only that, the cross and the crown central to 
our experience as Christians. Jesus showed us that in God's economy, the way up is down. The path to glory is the path of suffering. The crown is only to be had by way of the cross. The crown cannot be worn unless the cross is first born. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself and follow me. Jesus also prayed that we might share in his glory, glory which he shared with God the Father. The cross and the crown are inseparable parts of the Christian's story and experience. We studied 1 Peter together some time ago. And the cross and the crown, suffering and glory, are recurring features of that epistle. So turn with me to 1 Peter. We're going to survey 1 Peter real quick. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1 Peter 1.6. And see if you can start to identify the cross and the crown. These themes of suffering and glory. Side by side in the scriptures. First Peter chapter 1 verse 6. In this, Peter says, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. What do we have there? The cross, suffering. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's that? The crown. The cross and the crown side by side. Look at, with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, where Peter says that the prophets of the Old Testament were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ, the cross, and the glories to follow, the crown, sufferings and glory. 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, speaking of the cross of Jesus Christ, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, the cross, but made alive in the spirit. Now skip down to verse 22. Jesus who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The crown. Glory, honor, and rule. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, the cross, This is the Christian's experience now, right? Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation, the crown. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, 
That is the cross. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, the crown. Look with me at 1 Peter 5, verse 1. Therefore, I exalt the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, the cross, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, the crown. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And I don't have to tell you which one that refers to. 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, the cross, that he may exalt you at the proper time, the crown. 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. After you have suffered for a little while, the cross, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, the crown, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then the Epistle of James shares, us, shares with us this encouraging truth. Let me just read it for you. James 1.12, speaking again here of our experience as Christians. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, the cross. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That, of course, reminds us of the glorious truth of Romans 8.18, where Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the cross, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a crown coming. We're living the way of the cross now, but the time of the crown is going to surpass the time of the cross. Jesus is suffering in glory. His cross and his crown not only secured our eternal salvation, but also serves as the pattern for the Christian's own experience. The pathway of following Jesus is attended with suffering, but we can know with certainty that it will one day give way to glory. Christian's cross of suffering will one day be eclipsed by the crown of glory. Now, I want to take you to one last passage. And that's at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5. Pastor John read a little bit from that earlier. We sang, is he worthy? Comes right out of Revelation 5. And this imagery is so beautiful of the cross and the crown, suffering and glory, intertwined, paradoxically. Revelation chapter 5, we have a glorious vision that John sees of the heavenly throne room where God rules and reigns over all. So let me read it for us, all right? Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation you've made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What a glorious scene. Here is this book, this scroll, sealed And at first it appears that no one is worthy. No one is able to break the seals. To unleash God's plan for humanity and God's plan for the world. The plan that ultimately results in the redemption and the remaking of all that is and is broken because of the sin and the fall. And it appears that at first there's no one worthy. And John begins to weep. That that perhaps God's plan is somehow thwarted. That things haven't gone as they should. And one of these elders says, stop weeping. There's one who's worthy. And of course, the image is of this lamb. A sacrificed lamb. A lamb that bears death marks in its body. Yet the lamb is standing. The lamb has conquered death. Though its marks are still left in his body. This lamb is from the tribe of Judah. This lamb is of the root 
of David. This lamb is none other than the Messiah, the one long ago promised who would come and he would save his people from their sins. But he would do so by suffering for them. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the one who in his own body bore the very wrath of God so that he might purchase a people for himself and for the glory of his Father from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. This lamb, this living lamb, is worthy to open the seals and unroll the scroll and enact the plan of God for all the world. This lamb, though crucified and slain, rules and reigns from heaven, even today. And one day, he will rule and reign from the earth. The cross and the crown, two very rich biblical images which perfectly summarize the suffering and glory of Jesus Christ, and which perfectly summarize the Christian's experience of following Jesus. That's why I love this name. And that's why we're hoping you'll love it too, as it becomes an even greater part of our identity as a church, cross and crown church, a church centered on the good news of Jesus' redemptive suffering and his reigning glory, the cross and the crown. May God be glorified. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, without your cross, we would be hopeless. We would be left in our sins and left facing the certain judgment of God that we so justly deserve. And yet, because of your cross, we have hope. Because of your cross, we can be forgiven. Because of your suffering in our place, we can have life. And yet, Lord, we know that without the crown, the cross would be meaningless. Without your resurrection, without your ascension to the right hand of the Father without your righteous reigning over all things, the cross would simply be a sad story of a good man who died. But because the crown is inextricably linked to the cross, we are likewise inextricably linked to you. By your power, by your sacrifice, by your rising, and by your ruling, we have found ourselves united to you by faith in your finished work, in your cross, and in your crown. 
Lord, our experience here on this earth is one oftentimes of suffering. If they treated you this way, we shouldn't expect that they treat us any different. And yet you have promised that one day suffering will be swallowed up and eclipsed by glory. We thank you for the Christian's hope of the crown, even as we experience the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the richness of these two words and how they meld us into your purposes. Be honored and glorified in our church in all that comes ahead. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.